Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Uh, this week I'm going to continue my examination of top 10 Stephen King lists. Uh, this week I'm going to be tackling the top 10 Stephen King movie moments. So I've already covered the top 10 Stephen King movies, but now I'm going to just make a list of... Um, the legendary moments that take place within Stephen King movies. But first, I'm going to read some listener emails, uh, the first of which is from Jose, who writes, Hi, Mr. Constant Reader. My name is Jose. I'm from Monterey, Mexico, and I'm an avid Stephen King fan since my childhood. As you, my first King book was Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which is not a novel per se, so my first King novel was It. I'm 35 years old. I read It when I was just 12. I'm really proud to be one of your listeners because I'm sure that in years to come, the work of Mr. King will be deeply analyzed by various scholars. Mr. King will become a big literature legend, and you would be one of the very few, few, first few people that studied his work from a deep and objective point of view. I also want to thank you for your episodes. They make my fandom to King be stronger, and now I can finally say that I enjoy my cardio exercises thanks to you. <laughs> As I said before, I'm an old King fan, but my favorite novel is Revival, one of his latest books. Like you, I also suffered from a kind of disappointing King era, to be exact, from Dreamcatcher up until Under the Dome, which I loved. Then I returned to him completely with Full Dark, No Stars. I have a few differences with you regarding Dr. Sleep. No pun intended, the book made honor to his name. Uh, I found it quite boring, and I disagree with you that this is a horror novel. No horror for me whatsoever, just a sad story about a sad life led by Danny Torrance, a character I did not miss from the past. The only thing that kept me a little interested was the true knot, the energy vampires in the vans. I felt it a little forced that Mr. King uh, delivered a sequel to The Shining. I think it wasn't necessary. It would be like making a sequel to The Stand just to see what happened to Stu and Fran when they moved from Boulder to Maine. I mention this because I find that the great majority of the constant readers love Dr. Sleep, and I'm trying to understand why the same people disregarded Revival as a disappointment when I really fell in love with that book. I know that there are different kinds of stories, but Revival for me has all the unique King elements that make him the writer he is, and that ending was up there with the ending of the Dark Tower saga. I also want to make mention that I think exactly like you regarding the Stanley Kubrick film The Shining being better than the book. I know that maybe it's considered blasphemy among King fans to say something like that, but that's my humble opinion. The film felt more realistic, with a man like Jack becoming insane by the solitude plus the cabin fever plus the writer's block, and haunted by the Overlook's past represented as ghosts, goes and tries to kill his family. I prefer that rather than the story of a man possessed by a hotel, but hey, that's me. I want to thank you again, and I really wish that when you finish your reviews for all the King books, you continue to make episodes because it will suck if the podcast came to an end. Greetings from Mexico, your constant listener, Jose. Jose, thanks for writing in. Um, I really appreciate uh, really appreciate the, the, the email, and I agree with you that I just feel like Revival doesn't get nearly as much love as it deserves. It really is a good book. It's different. It's a different kind of book, um, but it's one that, that I think should be talked about more than it actually is. And up next, we have John, who writes, Hi, and hello. I just finished all the podcasts related to the Dark Tower series. I spent some time on the tangential novels and stories, but focused on the primary novels in the series. I was intrigued by your analysis, and I appreciate your comment that despite what we expected from King, that what we got was what was meant. Now, guys, again, um, from this point forward, um, in the Stephen King cast episodes, um, it's going to be just straight-up spoilers for everything, so here on out, just so you know, we're going to be spoiling the end of the Dark Tower series. 
One thing I wanted to discuss with you was the idea of future stories about the Ka Tet and what Roland will learn on this go on the wheel of Ka. More than anything, the Dark Tower series is about the process and the act of reading. As constant readers, we blame King for treating characters poorly, of making characters we love come to awful endings. I'm thinking of Oi. While yes, he is the originator or translator of the tale, it is us as readers who are enacting the violences, deaths, and mistreatments. When Roland begins his pursuit of the Dark Man at the beginning of The Gunslinger, he begins because we make him. The story does not exist without us turning the pages and pushing the characters ever onward. Roland is more of a twinner of the reader, always pursuing the tower at all costs, even the lives of the characters most important to us than of King. That's a great, great thought right there. If anything, I think he is a combination of the two, the creator and the one who experiences creation. When I came to the realization, mostly through the constant interruption of narrative by the voice of the writer, that the series was more than just the adventures in Midworld and more of a comment on the act of reading, the deaths and conclusions of the characters became less and less traumatic for me because I knew King was saying, all you have to do is climb the stairs, open the door, and walk back into the Mohane with our pal Roland. Thanks for the podcast and for being for keeping my king brain in motion, John. John, thank you for keeping my king brain in motion. Um, this was a great email, um, and I think that it's it's very much on the point. I think that you're right. I think that it is a combination of him being a twinner of the reader and the writer, and you're you're absolutely right. I love it. I love it. Okay, guys, up next our top ten Stephen King movie moments. Um, so. What you're going to get here is you're going to see that some of these, uh, some of these uh, moments come from movies that were not included in my top ten movies, uh, Stephen King adaptations of all time. So I'm glad that some people, uh, some of these scenes and some of these movies do get shoutouts because even though the movies as a whole uh, failed to live up to being a good Stephen King adaptation, um, there's definitely moments in there that deserve uh, special mention, which is why I decided to create the top 10 Stephen King movie moments. So number 10, um, I believe the moment when Warden Norton tears down the poster in Shawshank uh, prison it's it's such a good moment I mean it it builds up to that moment we have no idea where Andy Dufresne is they can't find Andy Dufresne and just the look on his face and just knowing that he's been outplayed by this man for a period of, of decades um, it's just that moment it's just like a great middle finger to such a great Stephen King villain so Warden Norton tearing down the poster and the reveal of the means through which Andy escaped uh, Shawshank. Such a good moment. Number nine is a classic moment from a, a film that, that made the, the top ten list. And I would say that that's um, running away from the train in Stand By Me. It's one of the only times in that particular movie where there's actually large danger coming down on the children. And, you know, I mean, you can talk about what it what it represents there. Uh, it can represent the, the oncoming rush of adulthood that, that's coming to meet them and how they're, they're fighting against it and trying to escape it. But uh, just watch that scene filmed through the lens of Rob Reiner. I mean, it is gorgeous looking, the, the, the location shots in that movie. I mean, that makes Castle Rock Castle Rock more so than, than a lot of the, the stories of King writing in Castle Rock. And I wish more time was spent in the, in the woods around Castle Rock based on what he gives us in Stand By Me, especially in, scene, in, in scenes like the, like the train coming down on the boys. Number eight is a completely different tone 
and it is a uh, a lot harder to talk about. But um, this is from a movie that did not make the, the 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 top Stephen King adaptations. But this is a moment that really is hard to sit through. And this is the death of Gage Creed. Um, from the kite flying out um, to watching the, the 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 truck barrel down the road to Dale Midkiff. And, like, you, you can make fun of his acting, whatever. Um, but, I mean, there are things that he does in this movie that are phenomenal. And I know that's cheesy to say him running is good, but when he's running, I mean, in that moment, you're not just running. You are running. It's the most important time you, you, you've you ever run in your life. Uh, and he sells that on his face, the, the desperation um, of him trying to get to Gage, um, just watching Gage walk closer and closer into the road, him falling at that final moment, um, and just the image of little Gage standing in front of the giant oncoming, uh, oncoming truck. This, of course, um, this starts to get punctuated with uh, Lewis screaming and Dale Medkiff doing a phenomenal job of just outpouring this immense grief that cannot be put into words, just screaming at the top of his lungs, screaming at the sky as the director, and I can't remember her name, um, just flashing, just flashing these Polaroid shots of all of the great times that they had had with Gage. Um, it's very inventive. I, I, I've never seen anything like that on, on screen before. And I think that it really captures this moment where that's what's happening in his mind at that moment. He's thinking of the life that has just been ripped from him. Um, and the, the rest of the movie, you know, kind of devolves into an EC comics kind of ghoulish, ghoulish, you know, what if story. But at that moment, it is a very, very powerful gut wrenching drama. And it's done very, very well because of how the death of Gage Creed is framed um, from Dale Midkiff running after him to those those Polaroid shots. Number seven, I'm going to go to the air raid siren from the mist. It's something about that noise and just hearing that sound. Um, it it, it triggle, triggers a level of alert that that is out of the norm. It's one thing to have a town blanketed in mist. It's another thing to, you know, have, you know, a, a big storm the night before. But watching, you know, this is coming on the heels of watching army trucks drive down the road. And this is all punctuated by the the air raid siren as the mist comes and Jeffrey DeMunn is running through the mist. It all comes together and it's it's so unsettling and you don't know what's going to happen next, but whatever it is, you know that it's bad. Um, it's because of that noise. That noise is saying here, it's it's announcing the end of the world is what it is. Uh, and it's, it's so well done. And maybe I'm putting it on this list because that air raid siren and fog goes together like milk and cookies for anyone that's ever played the Silent Hill games. Um, so maybe, maybe that's kind of bringing that into the top 10 Stephen King moments, which isn't fair to anything that didn't make the list, but whatever. I still think that it's a powerful moment in that film. Coming in at number six is from an adaptation that I really enjoyed um, revisiting. It's one that I didn't have strong thoughts on, but it, it wound up making me fall in love with the movie, and I believe that this scene really elevates um, 
a scene from both the, the, the movie and the book. I don't really recall off the top of my head if... I don't believe that this scene actually takes place in the book, but I love what it does for the movie. And that is... I'm going to give you two words, all right? And you tell me what movie it's from, okay? These two words are show me. Any guesses? Any guesses? Well, if you guessed that it was from Christine, you are correct. So this is where Artie, um, it fi he finally just, he's being honest with himself and he's being honest with Christine. And he, this is where he just tells the new love of his life um, to, to reveal herself to him. Um, and it's, it's that next step in their relationship. So remember that this is not just about a haunted car. It's a love story. And this is where their love um, goes. It, it, it takes that, that next step. So uh, they're not able to get physical due to the physiologies, but this is, this is the metaphor. This is where they, they go all the way, where they reveal each other, themselves to each other. And Show Me is such, oh, it's such a great scene where we just see special effects just go nuts without any CGI. It's just... This car rebuilds itself. It's incredible, an incredible effect. I love this moment in the movie. Um, it's one of the re it's like the heart of the movie itself. So show me is the number six entry in the top ten Stephen King movie moments. Number five. Um, number five probably could be in the top three, but it's not. Um, and the fact that it's not probably will will irk. Oh, sorry, sorry, stinky. Um, will probably irk. Uh, a lot of a lot of people out there, um, but I would say that the introduction to Pennywise from the from the It adaptation has to go up there. So this, the reason why Pennywise is a thing, has so much to do with how he's introduced, and it's a dual introduction. Okay, so yes, it is, and I'll talk about the sewer scene in a second, but. It's also the the itsy bitsy spider uh, laundry drying on the clothesline scene. That is terrifying to me. How you just see him for a second, you hear his <laughs> like goofy laugh in between the the flapping bed sheets, and he's smiling one minute and he's not smiling the next. Um, oh, I just got goosebumps. It is so creepy. So that combined with. Uh, the, the introduction to him when he introduces himself to, to Georgie. It is so iconic. Um, the don't you want a balloon, the way that his mouth wavers and trembles. It's just so creepy. I mean, it the, the image that we all have of Tim Curry underneath the, the, the sewer drain, it's firmly etched in our brains, and so clearly it had to be on that list, and it's coming in at number five. Number four, we have a scene that very easily could be number one. It's gone down in uh, the annals. I'm using that word a lot lately in these in these lists, but it's gone down in the annals of cinema history as one of the most painful scenes to watch. And the the the, the moment itself um, is only as strong as it is is because the director. The one, the only Rob Reiner was able to get us to that point, and he built the tension so, so wonderfully. 
Um, and of course, the scene that I'm talking about is the sledgehammer scene from Misery. Guys, this one is one for the history books. It is so well done. Um, and I think that it's a great improvement over the scene from the, the book itself, which didn't involve a, <clears throat> a sledgehammer, but instead um, involved an axe. Uh, but this is great. Just the character work between Kathy Bates and James Kahn and Rob Reiner just staging it masterfully. It, oh, so good, so good. I know that I talked a lot about it in my review of the movie, but uh, it, it clearly needed to be on this list, and I apologize for it not being higher up, but uh, I would say that the ones that take those top spots are very deserving of their top spots. For instance, number three. Here, here we go, guys. We, we've now cracked the top three, top ten Stephen King movie moments. Number three, you're not getting the bowl. You're not getting the bowl of ice cream. There you go. Um, number three is from the, the, the first Stephen King adaptation of all time. And that is, she's getting the bowl of ice cream. She's trying to at least. Hold on guys. Thank you. And you're not getting the tissues either. Um, and that is, well, it's the bucket of blood from Carrie. The... The image of Sissy Spacek drenched in blood, that whole scene, um, just waiting for that moment to happen, that, that push-pull in all of us where we can't wait, but the same times, uh, but the same time we, we are dreading that moment. It is, it as, here's that word again, it'll, it's gone down in the annals of, of cinema history as one of cinema's most famous scenes. And it's clocking in here as our number three uh, Stephen King movie moment, which leads us to our number two. And a lot of you might be surprised that it's not our number one. Two words that are now outdated. And anyone that is, is under the age of 30 probably don't even know what the reference is itself in this day and age of Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel, and Seth Meyers, and James Corden. Uh, I mean, we are so far removed from the original reference here. Um, that, that day and age is long gone. I mean, in between this particular reference, I mean, we had an entire era of David Letterman and Jay Leno, and then from there, Conan O'Brien helped pass the torch. So I'm talking a lot about late-night television show hosts, and the one it can all be traced back to is a man by the name of Johnny Carson, who was introduced each and every night on The Tonight Show um, when Ed McMahon would say, here's Johnny. And of course, that line, that line was immortalized in cinema by Jack Nicholson when he peers his face through the door that he has smashed with an axe and he, he screams that at, at Wendy Torrance. It is such an iconic moment. The image itself uh, is is etched in all our minds. So you might be wondering why it's coming in at number two, not at number one, because the number one movie moment I'm giving to this, this particular movie moment, because I believe it is the scariest moment 
of any of the ones that are on this particular list. Um, the movie itself did not break the, the top 10 uh, Stephen King adaptations of all time. Um, it's not the best movie, but I will argue that it does have the scariest moment of all of the, the, the Stephen King moments in any scary Stephen King adaptation and because he is known for his horror i did feel as though this needed to go um in the number one spot this is an incredible examination of what happens when you are able to put lighting and music and setting together to scare the bejesus out of us and what i'm talking about is the vampire child at the window in the salem's lot television adaptation the not just the scratching at the window but oh man the build up to that moment with the music the music just builds and builds in the billowing fog and the lighting in the fog and then he just floats to the window and it all leads to the scratching but it is such a well done sequence that should haunt your dreams because it's terrifying and it's great the rest of the movie as you'll remember from my review of it is not that good but I, you, you just you can't argue that these scenes with the, the vampire children at the window, you can't argue that they're not well done. They're incredibly done. Incredibly, incredibly done. I love them. They are the scariest, some of the scariest imagery that I have ever seen. And because of that, because of the effectiveness, I am placing that as the number one Stephen King movie moment of all time, of all time guys so i know that there's so many that didn't make that list and anything that that didn't make the list please write in at stephen kingcast at yahoo.com and share me your top 10 lists or anything that you might disagree with or anything that you think that i should have included here now with all of this said i'm going to give a very special mention um what i would say is the 11th uh <laughs> If I was going to make a list of 11 Stephen King movie moments, this one is so absurd. Um, it's so much fun. And at the end of time, when everything is chronicled in all of, in all of movies, when lists are assembled and tropes are, are, are written about and um, people have analyzed uh, how how many people die by, by certain deaths in movies, whether it's with a knife or... By a gunshot I can tell you there's only going to be one example of this particular death okay and it's gonna go to Stephen King for envisioning this and this is the werewolf death by baseball bat beating from uh, silver bullet the, the 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 fact that the werewolf doesn't use his teeth or claws to murder someone but instead uses the peacemaker baseball bat to beat someone to death uh, should be included on this list I'm sorry it didn't crack the top 10 but it is so strange and so surreal that it needs to be included in conversation it's a great moment in this movie and I'm recognizing it here. So thank you everyone for, for listening to this week. Uh, feel free to write in guys and may you have long days and pleasant nights and I'll see you here next episode where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. <laughs>